If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support this independent show and join our online community starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. Our industrialized healthcare system and our industrialized agriculture system together have really conspired to keep us sick. I mean, it's an unprofitable business for both of them. I mean, and it, interestingly, they are often the same companies. That was Dr. Daphne Miller, a family physician, science writer, research scientist, author of The Jungle Effect, and clinical professor at the University of California, San Francisco. She's also the founder of the Health from the Soil Up initiative, where she studies the connections among health, culture, and agriculture with the goal of building a healthier and more resilient food system from the soil up. Stay tuned as we're about to explore why we need to dismantle the idea that spending more on health equals better health outcomes. The primary causes leading the nutrition levels within our whole foods to have decreased over the decades and also what we can do about that and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. As a kid, I grew up actually as a Peace Corps brat. My dad was career Peace Corps, which is pretty unusual. He started off as a volunteer, but then actually worked his way up to, you know, trainer and associate director and director in the Peace Corps. And so I lived all over the world when I was young, but mostly in North Africa and the Middle East. And I feel like the connection between health and food is much closer in other cultures than it is in the U.S. It's just they are seen as very much one in the same. But I think for me, when things really started to crystallize was when I was doing my internship, my first year of my post-medical school training. And I decided to do it in a, in a rural area in California called Salinas, which is I was about to say very rural, but it's certainly not very rural anymore, which is 
kind of ground zero for the lettuce basket of the United States. It's where so much agriculture takes place. And we certainly wouldn't have things like strawberries or cilantro or lettuce if it weren't for that region. I mean, we, they pump it out and ship it all over the country. And I was working in the hospital there and, and taking care of patients day in and day out. And at some point during my grueling internship, it suddenly dawned on me that a high percentage of my patients had been harmed in one way or another by the food system. They were either migrant workers and discriminated against or not receiving fair wages and suffering from diseases that we know are associated with poverty and and racism and workers who actually got injured in the fields or were suffering from some kind of pesticide poisoning. I was, was seeing other people who were suffering from chronic diseases like diabetes or heart disease, which from not being able to afford the lettuce and strawberries and the fruits and vegetables coming out of those fields and having to eat highly processed foods. So it was this kind of whole spectrum of illness that I was tracing either directly or indirectly back to agriculture and to our food system. And I think that's what started to really spotlight that connection for me between health and agriculture. Right. And it sounds like in addition to health and agriculture, it sounds like you really witnessed the intersectionality of a lot of other issues as well, like social injustice, maybe racial inequity, and all of these issues that are so widespread and deep-rooted today. It sounds like you got to see a snippet of all of those things at play. Absolutely. And, you know, at the time, it was interesting because, uh, you know, I, I would try and discuss these connections with my medical colleagues and certainly wanted to explore how to improve the environment around the hospital so that so fewer people would be harmed. And at that point, it was just so odd to even talk about agriculture and food in the same breath as you were talking about institutional healthcare and medicine that it was very hard for me to have the conversations. Well, in your book, The Jungle Effect, you ask some very profound questions that at least for me, got me to really disassociate some ideas we may have in our minds in terms of what it is that actually leads to good health. So some examples you ask, why do the relatively poor native populations in Mexico and Africa have such low levels of the chronic diseases that plague the United States? Why is the rate of seasonal affective disorder in Iceland, a country where dreary weather is the norm, so low? And why is it that older women in Okinawa have such low breast cancer rates that it is not considered cost-effective for them to get screening mammograms? What would you say are some of the most persistent ideas we have in the United States of what it is that we need to live healthy lives that we have to maybe unlearn and debunk? Yeah, well, it's interesting. In the U.S., I mean, you can just follow the dollars. And we just have this belief that if we spend enough on sort of research and technology and enough on our healthcare system, that somehow we can get healthier as a nation. We spend more per capita than pretty much every other industrialized nation and get far fewer healthy years in return. 
And it's, in my mind, just a complete misappropriation of funds. I mean, we really need to go way upstream and change the environments where we live and the environments where we grow our food and, you know, protect our, our natural environments. And that's really how you protect health and ensure longevity and also well-being and quality of life. Trying to spend it on technologies or miraculous, you know, CRISPR <laughs> interventions is an idea that certainly can benefit a small proportion of the population, but not most people. The idea that healthcare, which really is sick care, is going to keep you from getting ill is also a real misconception. I mean, our healthcare system is really great on at operating on you or giving you a complicated regimen of medications once you get sick, but certainly not at helping you prevent disease and stay healthy. I know you've also been notable in your work that has inspired the medical community to prescribe parks and trips to the outdoors as parts of their health regimen. And you're, of course, now encouraging people to learn more about how they can turn to the farm for real medicine. So on this note, how much of the healthcare industry and the dominant approaches to treating symptoms or illnesses, how much of this do you think has been influenced by the pharmaceutical industry? And would there be any validity in saying that big pharma's influence on healthcare has prevented these more holistic and often less costly remedies to have garnered the attention and emphasis that they deserve? Well, our industrialized healthcare system and our industrialized agriculture system together have really conspired to keep us sick is what is very evident to me. I mean, it's an unprofitable business for both of them. I mean, and interestingly, they are often the same companies like Bayer and Syngenta. They produce chemicals for agriculture and chemicals for our bodies. The system as it stands right now is really working quite well for them and for insurers as well, as long as they're not on the hook for insuring us for a whole lifetime, the system also works well. But I think that's going to shift for insurers if they were responsible for us from cradle to grave, because then all of a sudden this sick care system becomes very, very expensive for them. It definitely sounds like we have a lot of systemic and structural issues to address. And on a more personal level, from the jungle effect and your work, we learned that there's not one type of diet for optimal health. And I know people have said after reading your book that it's a relief hearing you apply this broader, more common sense knowledge into nutritional wisdom, because if we were to follow every single study that came out, that would be really confusing. And sometimes the findings contradict each other as well. And by now, there's also probably enough research done, research of different qualities and credibility, of course, but there's probably enough research out there that people can cherry pick studies to prove any particular presumption that we may have. So how do you go about navigating all the research constantly being published while remaining a bigger picture view to make sense of everything? Well, I I have to be honest with you. I really don't read nutrition research anymore. Our system of uh, evaluating nutrients, foods, and diets is really broken. There really isn't an alternative model out there that could work unless you put humans in cages and fed them very prescribed diets for a long term. 
mm-hmm. for years, maybe even a lifetime. So, I mean, for me, what's a lot, what's much more helpful is to look at this holistically and look at populations that are still thriving and understand that what they're eating is part of a much bigger picture, which is their environment and their lifestyle, put it all together in a way that that makes sense within the context of wherever you're living on the planet. And also to find cultures that resonate with you so that you're choosing foods that make sense for your palate. So that's why I wrote Jungle Effect, because there are healthy, long-lived communities around the globe. And I wanted to highlight some of them and have this be something that my patients could potentially learn from. You know, the idea was not, you know, I wasn't the only one doing it. In fact, I was writing that book exactly at the same time that Dan Bootner was writing Blue Zones, which was kind of the same concept, although he focused, I think, a little less on on nutrition. But yeah, I think we came out with both of these at pretty much the same time, except I think his his became a lot more famous than mine. <laughs> but I originally worked on this for my patients. I mean, that's why I started doing the project and then an editor picked it up. But it really was supposed to, I wasn't actually intending to publish it at all. It really was supposed to be this series of stories for the patients in my practice so that they could start to have an idea for how they could eat in a more helpful way. I mean, it was just for so long, patients had been coming to me and saying, why is it that I'm getting diabetes at age 45 and my grandmother from who lived in the Philippines never got diabetes? Like, what's mm. going on there? Or just you know, people from all over the globe. I had patients who are African-American who are like, why am I getting colon cancer? And I look at the rates of colon cancer in Africa where I can trace my ancestry they're incredibly low. What's going on there? You know? Yeah. There's this idea called, I think it's called nutritionism, where people overly fixate on the micronutrients and the vitamin levels and et cetera. So with everything that you just said, do you feel like we would benefit from not fixating so much on these individual nutrients and to take a more holistic viewpoint of what food really is, where it comes from, and the context of how that food is grown? Yeah, I mean, look, if you eat fairly locally and eat a you know a varied diet with lots of different fruits and vegetables and have them make up about half of each meal, eat in moderation, and as much as you can support local agriculture that is also growing a diversified diversity of crops, chances are that you're also going to get a nice spectrum of nutrients in your diet. I can't guarantee it, but chances are very, very high that that is what's going to happen. I do have some patients who they have a medical issue or they are covered up all the time. So they have vitamin D deficiency or they have some kind of digestive disorder and are not absorbing their nutrients properly, where there is a need to pay a little bit more attention and even to do testing and try and figure out if they do need some kind of supplementation. 
But for most people, that is not the case. And I think what's happened is there's this narrative out there that everybody is supposed to be doing all this blood work and hyper monitoring their intake and really treating their bodies more like a scientific experiment where they need to titrate just very specific amounts of nutrients. And it just doesn't work that way. Well, a big part of your work today centers around soil and human health. And something that I've personally mistaken before is prematurely drawing the conclusion that the nutrient levels within our foods on average have declined because the nutrients in our soils have declined due to degenerative agriculture practices. You've noted that this train of thought hasn't been proven and isn't really true. So can you first share with us what you've seen it is that's been leading to the nutritional declines in our food based on what we know? First of all, there are regions in the U.S. and parts of the world that are deficient in certain nutrients. And and this is something that has certainly been understood historically. Like there's parts of Pakistan where there's very low amounts of iodine in the soil. And we see lots of goiter, which is a thyroid issue that really stems from iodine deficiency and hypertrophy of the the thyroid. There's actually an area in the China that has very low amounts of selenium in the soil, and we've seen cardiomyopathy in the populations that live there, a problem with the heart as a result of this low of this low selenium level. So it is certainly possible for low levels of a nutrient in the soil to cause diseases in humans in the same way that poisons in the soil, like lead, can cause diseases in humans. But That is different from what has been documented in the United States, which has been over the last half century, this consistent decline in the nutrient density of our fruits and vegetables. And the cause of that is not the soil. The cause of that is that we are growing different genetics now than we were 50 or 60 years ago. Our plant genetics have changed. And whereas before we were using more heirloom seeds that were selected for things like taste and how well they worked in a certain climate and even drought tolerance and and things like that, what we're selecting now mostly for in terms of genetics is yield and how well these fruits and vegetables and grains can be stored and processed and packaged and, you know, their shelf life and so on. So our priorities have changed in terms of the types of fruits and vegetables that we're growing. And as a result, the uh, nutrient density has declined. I am sure if you were to compare the exact same varietal of a plant now to 50 years ago, if you were to do that, the nutrition profile would be roughly the same. So then what is the relationship between the soil health and soil nutrients with the level of nutrients with our food? Is there any connection there In terms of if we were to trace this nutrient cycle and the health loop from the soil to the plant to people and animals, then back to the soil, what is important for us to keep in mind there? Soil health definitely plays a role in terms of the nutrients in our food, but it's a small role compared to genetics. And the most important piece seems to be how much biodiversity there is in that soil. You know, are there a lot of 
microbes and worms and so on and are, because they are the ones who break down organic matter and enrich the carbon content of the soil and also the mineral and content of the soil. They're also the ones that interact with the roots of plants and pass those nutrients onto the plants. So there is now starting to be a you know fairly robust body of research showing that soil that is more biodiverse tends to grow fruits and vegetables that have slightly higher levels specifically of polyphenols and antioxidants because those are the the nutrients in the plants or the the nutritional qualities in the plants that are most affected by the interaction with the microbes so just to clarify that the levels of nutrients in these minerals in our soils may have inherently not decreased, but if we have dead soil compared to soil that is really lively with organic matter and with uh, microbial life and biodiversity there, that would affect the plant's ability to uptake these nutrients and then also perhaps the bioavailability of the nutrients as well when we consume them. There is uh, some research suggesting that. You will see in the studies that it's a little bit like the nutrition research that mm. we talked about, and that sometimes it's plus, sometimes it's minus, because the effect is not huge. We're always going to be debating this, but the effect is huge for genetics. For example, certain kinds of carrots can have six to 10 times the beta carotene of other kinds of carrots versus the same type of carrots that are grown in biodiverse soil might have maybe 0.2 or 0.3 times the amount of beta carotene as compared to a less alive soil. My answer at the end of the day is choose seeds selected for nutrient density and for taste and grow them in active, alive, healthy, regenerative soil. And that way you can be guaranteed that you really are getting the healthiest food. But taking standard hybrid carrot that's grown commercially in every sort of big commercial organic operation and growing that in more regenerative soil will not give you as much bang for your buck. I was reading the other day, which was really mind-boggling, that I believe the majority of our seed sales worldwide come from just five or six companies. And a lot of these companies are either owned by or sister companies with chemical or pharmaceutical companies. Yes, we have absolutely lost our genetic seed stock. It's in a lot of the lovely little companies were bought out by these companies at first with the intention of potentially supporting them and keeping them going, but then they actually just close them down. So we really are, are losing important seed genetics at a very alarming rate. And as climate change is getting worse, this is even more serious because it's a lot of those heirloom seeds or what are often called land-raised seeds, which have the, the, the encoded DNA to help us withstand climate change and still have delicious food. You know, their their genetics allow them to be drought tolerant and heat tolerant and actually grow in uh, less rich soil and all of these things. 
One of the big challenges I see is that in the sick care industry right now, big pharma thrives off of this being driven by the system that we have set up right now that really is sick care, like you mentioned earlier. And also in agriculture, the agrochemical companies thrive off of the farmers buying all of these inputs using pesticides, fertilizers, insecticides, and all of these things. So with the huge influence of big money right now, these big corporations, what do you see as the best way for us to work against them? I feel like the real lever lies within anchor institutions that play an important role in communities, either rural or urban. So hospitals, schools, universities, nursing homes, large employers, places that are bulk buying. I mean, I spoke at Stanford the other day and they told me there they serve 12,000 meals a day just to, you know, on campus. And that doesn't even include the hospitals, you know. So these kinds of organizations have an enormous amount of power in terms of their buying potential. And they are able to funnel those resources in terms of foods and money into a community. So they're really the ones that we should be lobbying and expecting to step up to the plate. They have much more power than the individual consumer. And a lot of them really do want to do the right thing. They have the incentive to have uh, healthy populations. I mean, the school system wants healthy kids, you know, (laughs) that can go on to be productive adults. So that is really where much of our efforts should be focused. There are some grocery chains that are also really stepping up to the plate. I, I would name Costco in that group. And Walmart is doing some very ethical things right now. They're certainly sticking with the Paris Climate Accord, even though our president has pulled out. Identifying these organizations that have a lot of power in the community and that are willing to say no to industry. So willing to say no to Monsanto and Bayer and, you know, and or at least be transparent about how much their products are controlling their bottom line. I would also say Big Food, which is really 10 companies in this country that include Danone and uh, General Mills and Unilever and Nestle. And, you know, so there's there's 10 of them. They need to step up as well. Some of them, uh, like Danone and General Mills, are committing to help farmers convert some of their acreage to regenerative ag. But My concern with these companies is if you look at their products and even their organic, healthy-ish products, they're not good for us. And so these companies are not really creating a cycle of health. I mean, the Pop-Tarts and Pillsbury Doughboy and those things are just not good for our health. And these companies don't seem to be willing to really change their big skews and their big products because ultimately they they want to make what people are going to buy. They're not really invested in changing the national palette. They really just uh, want to put a label on the back that says this is good for the planet. So I, I have a lot less faith in the big food. I do not think that they're going to really be part of the solution. 
So on that front, do you feel like consumers have to lead in shifting the consumer trends and consumer desires so then they will shift because they're heading towards wherever people want to spend their dollars? I do, but it's a really complicated relationship because they're actually, they've hijacked consumers' taste buds, right. you know, with, with, with food science and marketing and even what's just available and proximal in stores, you know. And so putting the onus on consumers, it feels like a very dangerous thing and also just misleading to consumers. It's making them think they have a power that they really don't within a system where we really our buying patterns are being controlled, whether uh, we like it or not. And so, of course, consumers try and not buy anything that comes from a package. Understand what kind of farm resources are in your area and, and support them as much as possible. Grow your own food. You know, eat whole foods when you, you know, when you must go to a supermarket, you know, shop the periphery. But I also feel that it is these big anchor institutions who want communities to thrive and who are there to stay and who are more local, who are more community based, who are the ones who really, really need to change the narrative here. Right. I was just thinking the other day, people often talk about maybe for people or for communities with higher levels of chronic illness, people talk about how, oh, you need to raise consumer education on what is healthy for them to eat. But then on the other side, I'm like, if all of this junk food didn't even exist, and if everything out there is already healthily grown and raised, then they're not going to have the issue of having to work against all of these foods that are crafted to make people addicted to them. Absolutely. And I mean, that's something that Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has been promoting for a really long time in terms of their funding is what are things that can make the healthy choice the easy choice. And all you have to do is go in to communities of color and poor communities where a lot of this marketing is actually targeted to a certain extent and see how hard it is to make the healthy choice the easy choice. We really do need to go zip code by zip code and create an easy choice equity. It's not like upper middle class or affluent kids were born knowing how to eat more healthfully, but you see that they actually do make healthier choices because they, you know, it's what's proximal to them. It's what's easily available and within reach. Well, to further this more holistic approach, I know you're working to expand our approach to medicine into what you call planetary medicine. So what is that and how does that compare to our current more personalized medicine? Well, there is a whole movement in planetary medicine. There's actually, a, I think it's an institute of planetary medicine, or maybe it's a center of planetary medicine at Harvard. And I love what they're all doing, and I go to meetings and sort of support them. But my personal interest really is in connecting the dots between our personal health and the environmental health and planetary health and understanding that there's so many choices that we can make as an individual that will make us healthier and by extension really make the planet healthier rather than just thinking of, you know, sort of how the planet is making us sick or healthy. I like to think of the arrow going in the other direction. So an obvious example is eating in a planetary diet, which is mostly fruits and vegetables, you know, heavy on plants, really limiting the amount of meat and the amount of processed foods. 
and eating grains that really are barely processed from when they came out of you know came out of the earth. So your diet is one pl- place where you can make yourself healthy and by extension the planet healthy. But there's many others as well. I mean trying to not drive and instead to bike or walk as much as you can. Obviously that's going to improve your health and well-being and you know cut down on emissions and have an enormous beneficial impact in terms of the climate. And you know the same with waste and food waste and the list goes on and on. If you if you rake your leaves instead of using one of those horrible leaf blowers, which once again burn fossil fuels and are just a blight on the neighborhood. They make so much noise and blow dust in the air and hurt our lungs. I mean if, instead you could rake your leaves and get a workout, you know. <laughs> so it's this other idea that just doing something that's good for yourself is also good for the planet. Gardening is another example. Um, the list really is is quite extensive. Even in terms of building meaningful relationships and community connectivity and volunteering and bringing a real sense of humanity into everything you do. I mean, that's so important for your mental health. And as we know, those kinds of human connections really do allow us to make better choices politically. They help us learn from each other and communicate better. And we need all of that for planetary health as well. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? I really enjoy uh, Bay Nature, which is a local magazine in the Bay Area, which is doing wonderful things in terms of reporting on nature. So I want to put in a plug for them. (laughs) What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? Every morning there will will be a cup of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Probably cutting down a little bit on that coffee. (laughs) What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? I am working on telling stories about how healing ourselves is actually an act of protecting the, the planet, that really we all have our inner planet that we need to take care of. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? When I talk to people like you who care about this stuff. (laughs) 
Absolutely. So to our listener, to learn more and stay updated on Daphne's work, you can head to www.drdaphne.com and you can also follow her on Twitter at drdaphnemiller and on Instagram at daphnemillermd. All of this will be linked in our show notes as well that you can find at greendreamer.com. Daphne, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your wealth of wisdom with us. If our listener would like to support the work that you're doing and get involved, what would you recommend they do? That is a good question. I mean, there's so many different pieces of this. And I get questions all the time from young people who are like, you have had a very interesting career. How do I combine health or public health and food systems and agriculture? And there isn't a really great way to do it yet. So it really, you have to decide, do you want to sort of come at it from the healthcare side or the nutrition side or the ecology or food system side. (laughs) But I write a column for the Washington Post usually once a month. And sometimes that's an interesting place to sort of get ideas on interesting organizations and so on that are doing something. Beautiful. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Continue to dream. We we need a lot of Green Dreamers out there. Oh